So I'm excited to get to spend tonight talking about the Garden Temple. I'm going to be covering a lot in a short period of time because this is one of the biggest, most major themes that goes through the story of the Bible. So there is a lot of ground to cover, but let's get into it. So just to recap, when we talked about the patterns of rest in week three, week three or four, one of those, anyway, we talked about how the uh, temples and the tabernacle were inaugurated in seven days. And so on the seventh day in the creation story with God resting in his creation was a sign that this is a temple text. We're talking about this God making his temple and his priesthood. And so I'm excited to spend, we got to spend an entire week looking into this a little bit. So I want you to think of the universe. Think of the cosmos. I'm guessing what probably comes to mind is planet Earth, globe, and the solar system, the Milky Way galaxy. If you're nerdy, then clusters and superclusters, and then the known universe and the great beyond where light has not reached yet. That is not what they thought about. When they thought about the cosmos, they imagined this three-tiered cosmos where there's the land, or the waters, the land, and the sky, or the heavens. Which in Hebrew, the, same, the word for sky is the same word for heavens. It's the sky heaven space. So that was, those were their three tiers. That's what they thought about the universe. The water, the land, the sky. As you go up, you get progressively closer to the domain of the divine. The Israelites, because of this, they like to use three geographical spaces to represent the cosmos, to be like a little microcosm of creation. And the Garden in Eden is this, this little microcosm of creation, where it has three tiers. There's Eden, the land of Eden. There's a garden inside the land of Eden. And then in the middle of the garden is the tree of life. And so you have these three tiers, and the closer you get to the middle, the closer you get to encountering the Lord at the Tree of Life. So Eden itself is like a little microcosm. And the Tree of Life was where Yahweh's presence could be especially experienced. And because of this concept of these three tiers, or these three steps, three ladder rungs, however you want to think about it, because of that concept... People like to erect ritual sites or cultic sites on the top of mountains. Because for us land creatures, mountains are reasonably the closest we can get to the heaven space and all of the Elohim who live, inhabit the heaven space. So you might have read through kings or the prophets and they keep mentioning these high places. And God's really upset about erecting all these high places or this king didn't tear down the high places. And the high places were these mountaintops where people had erected these ritual cultic sites, worshiping other deities. Because again, when they thought about religious sites, they imagined mountains. And interestingly enough, with Eden and the Garden in Eden, whenever the biblical authors thought about it, they imagined it as a mountain. So not just this flat space, as I grew up thinking of, but a mountain. And 
with those three tiers, that the closer you go to the top of the mountain, the closer you are approaching the presence of Yahweh at that tree that's at the top. And at the top, we find this spring of living water that's pouring down from the pinnacle and watering the whole land. So Ezekiel, when he talks about it, he just calls it straight up the mountain of God. So in the garden, there's all this life. Then there's the land of Eden around the garden. But then outside of Eden, there's death. It's wilderness desert. Remember, that's the chaos death realm. So Michael Morales, in his book, um, Who Shall Send the Mountain of the Lord, which I cannot more highly recommend if you're interested in this topic. He said this, The realm outside of the gates of Eden is polluted with death. Approaching God and communing with him must of necessity entail being set apart from sin and uncleanliness, which belongs to the realm of death, to God himself, who is utterly holy, the realm of life. So you have the garden in the realm of life and the desert wilderness, which is the realm of death. And in the garden, we find life abundantly everywhere. And it's fitting that in the middle of the garden, where God's presence especially is, is a tree of life. And the tabernacle was modeled after this garden. And you got to look at that in your homework. So the tabernacle, it also had three tiers. It had three sections to it. It had the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And the closer you go, it is as though you're ascending the mountain. Where in the Holy of Holies, that's the pinnacle. That's where the presence of God is specially dwelling. Where heaven and earth are overlapping, like they were in the garden. And so it was filled with all this garden imagery where there's trees, like the menorah is this almond tree. There's trees, there's fruit, blooming flowers. There's, in Solomon's temple, there's like all these gourds, all these all this food, there's food for the priests and bread, there's food for people whenever they bring sacrifices, there's just all of this food, there's lots of gold, the presence of Yahweh is especially experienced there, heaven and earth overlap, and the entrance is in the east. So the Garden of Eden, whenever the man and the woman sinned, they were exiled to the east of the garden. They were exiled out of the garden, but not out of Eden. But then Cain, when Cain killed his brother in chapter 4, he was exiled out of Eden to the east. Babylon was built to the east. Abraham is the first person who goes west. (laughs) But the garden had the entrance to the east, and so does the tabernacle and the temple. That was very important to them. The day that it was inaugurated, the tabernacle as well as Solomon's temple the fiery presence of God's glory came down like a pillar of fire, showing to everyone that God's presence was going to be especially experienced there. And so the tabernacle and later the temple were the earthly counterparts to God's heavenly temple. So remember, Moses went up on Mount Sinai on a mountain, And he encountered God, and God showed him the blueprints for the tabernacle. Like, have you ever thought that, like, those are usually the chapters? If you're reading the Bible in a year, it's usually mid-Exodus that you give up. Because it's pretty boring. 
And then there's like the exciting, like, oh, the golden calf story. And then it gets back down to the trenches, like, but the curtains. Let's talk about the curtains. And if we don't give up there, we for sure do in Leviticus. But on this mountaintop, he sees God's heavenly temple, God's heavenly throne. And the tabernacle is the counterpart, the, the earthly, landly counterpart for God's heavenly temple. And think about how much this tabernacle would have meant to the Israelites who are wandering around in the wilderness, in the realm of death. Think about what that would have meant to them. That just outside their door is death. That if you go too far without water, you will die. And in the middle of your camp, that you see every single day, is this garden temple and this tabernacle. But just that promise that the Lord was giving them. That like despite their situation, where all they see is we are in the middle of the realm of death and chaos. That promise to them. The Lord saying, I'm going to bring you back. Even though the man, the woman sinned, he's going to bring his people back. He is committed to bringing his people back to his garden temple. So let's pause there and talk about food. For some reason, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, Yahweh is very concerned about what they're going to eat. Have you ever noticed that? I didn't until I started underlining everything. He talks about food a lot. Why does he mention food so much? Remember, the great symbiosis. We've been talking about it every week. Where humanity's purpose in life was to feed the gods and temples were where you fed them and sacrifices was how you fed them so it was very important to people to have lots of temples and lots of sacrifices because that's how you feed your god and continue to garner favor from them this god is going to have a temple but it's going to be very different than all the other temples He's going to have sacrifices. But their purpose is going to be entirely different. There's no mention of feeding God in this. Instead, it's just God feeding them. God providing food for them. God has grown food for them. I want you to eat. I want you to eat, eat. From all these trees. So we learn that this is a God who doesn't need humans. Again, we don't need to feed him. He feeds us. We're the ones in need. We're the ones dependent. He is completely different. And this means that Yahweh doesn't function in the system of the great symbiosis. He functions under the system of a covenant. He is the God of covenant. And so later, when there was a tabernacle and temple, when people would give sacrifices, they wouldn't function as feeding Yahweh because he doesn't need us to feed him. But instead, those sacrifices, those offerings, would function as giving tribute to or experiencing communion with their God, with their king. And so for 
functions of a sacrifice that I'm going to mention tonight is that one, sacrifices would display their loyalty, commitment, and total whole life surrender to the Lord. So that's one of the functions of sacrifices. We can think of sacrifices like, oh, that's so archaic. But it was supposed to feel like a sacrifice. Like think about whenever, if we have given financially, where it is, it feels uncomfortable. But we do it because we love the, the one we're giving it to. Second, it was also their means of being brought into the presence of God. So Michael Morales, again, his book, Who Shall Send the Mountain of the Lord, he gets into this, that when a Israelite would bring in an offering, like a, imagine like some pigeons, or a lamb, and they would place their hand, or like lean their body against the sacrifice. And from that moment on in the ritual, the sacrifice would represent the life of the Israelite. So from this point on, this lamb is going forward to do experience some things, and it is as though I am experiencing those things. And it would be placed on the altar of burnt offering, and the smoke, where would it go? Up to the heavens. Where that lamb being burnt and carrying up that smoke, it is as though the Israelite themselves is being brought up into heaven with communion with God. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, wearing the names of the Israelite tribes on his chest and shoulders. And in that way also, it was as though they were ascending the mountain of the Lord through their representative. Third, they was, it would function, sacrifices would function as a feast. Some of the sacrifices was just like to feast, to dine with God, where the Israelite would eat, the priests would eat, and they would just dine in the presence of God, just like the man and the woman were supposed to in the garden. Where again, there's this like indulging of delicious barbecue. Who of us would not be down for that? I'm sorry if you're vegan or vegetarian. But they would feast with God. And then fourthly, there were two types of sacrifices that involved blood. I think when I traditionally thought of sacrifices, that's pretty much all I thought about, of like, you smear the blood on things, and it's weird. But there's only two sacrifices that involve blood. Blood represents life, because it's the life of a creature. If, there is no, if the blood is gone, there's no more life. So blood represented life. And interestingly, blood is not ever like really put on the people, not typically. It's mostly put on the sacred space, not on the people. And this is why, because imagine you have this tabernacle, but then in this the place of holiness, it's the realm, or it's the realm of life, but then people pollute it. They carry in and bring in bits of the realm of death into this realm of life. That could be through sin, maybe like bodily discharges where their bodily fluids are coming out. Their life is seeping out of them. That concept belongs with the realm of death. Their life is coming out of them. That's considered unclean, not sinful, just unclean, ritually speaking. And so if that happens, then there's a need to cleanse the sacred space. And if you want to cleanse away or wash away death, what's a really good soap? 
life in the form of blood. So if you think about sacrifices and blood, just think that's spiritual soap, right? So every temple has sacrifices. It also has priests. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, Yahweh Elohim placed the human in the Garden of Eden to serve it and to keep it. These two words, to serve and to keep, is the word abad and shamar. Abad means to work or to worship, depending on who you're working for. Like if I'm working for Sue, I'm working for her. If I'm working for the Lord, that's an act of worship. I love you, Sue, but I'm not going to worship you. And then second <laughs> is the word shamar. And this means to guard or to protect. So the idea of keeping something safe. Like when kids play keep away or Harry Potter, there's a keeper and they're supposed to, it's a goalie. But that's the idea, that they are protecting, they're guarding. They're keeping something safe. And these two words, they are used frequently throughout the Old Testament, but they're only used together to describe priests. So this is priestly language here in this sentence. So yeah, they, priests were supposed to keep and to protect to make sure that the pollution of the realm of chaos didn't come inside the realm of life. So they were supposed to guard. And then the high priest was supposed to be a mediator between God and humanity, where he represented the people to God every time he went into the Holy of Holies. So that one day a year on the Day of Atonement were the spiritual soap, of blood would cleanse the sacred space, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, climb the top of the mountain, and bring with him all the Israelites, symbolically through the names that he wore. And so this idea that there is a way for us to ascend the mountain of the Lord through a high priestly representative the priests also represented the Lord to the people through their justice and love and generosity. Because these are people who, I mean, they work on the temple grounds. They work, they serve. Their job is to serve God. And so they were supposed to display to everyone what Yahweh was like and their generosity and love. Here we have in Genesis 2 a temple and a priest but soon they are going to be polluted by death and sin. The humans rebel against God and are exiled east of the garden. And thus begins the trajectory for all of the priests to come. The very next priest that we see, or the priest of the Israelites, is Aaron, the first high priest of the Israelites. And day one of his job, his first act as high priest is to make an idol that golden calf God's not about that but he still uses him isn't that remarkable that he still like he still uses him as high priest after that point and so God goes into great detail great detail in Leviticus of what the high priest is supposed to do what he's supposed to wear how he's supposed to like just the rituals he was supposed to perform 
versus the rest of the priests and what they were supposed to do and perform. The outer court was for the priests and for Israelites or Gentile converts to offer their sacrifices. So think of those priests as smelling like barbecue. But the high priest went into the holy place where there's another altar, but it's the altar of incense. So this guy, this one guy, he smells real different. You walk past him, like if he walks behind you, you know because you can smell him. He smells real good. He goes into great detail about what a high priest and a priest is supposed to do. Only the high priest can go beyond the holy place into the holy of holies. Day one of the tabernacle being opened. And Aaron's two sons go into the holy of holies. Did he not give enough instruction? He laid it out so clearly, which is something that other gods gods did not do. He laid it out so clearly, and day one, they trespass, and they're struck dead. Now you have the problem where there's dead bodies in the Holy of Holies. It's supposed to be the realm of life, thus leading to the Day of Atonement the Leviticus focuses on. Story goes on, and you eventually have in 1 Samuel this guy named Eli. He's now the high priest. He's a terrible father and sketchy character. His two sons, they threaten the Israelites for more sacrifices because they're stealing them. So they're both threatening people rather than showing them love and generosity and justice. They're threatening Israelites and converted Gentiles and then stealing it for themselves, effectively stealing from God himself. And they're also acting like temple prostitutes because they're having sex with women in the outer court, publicly, which is what you would do and how you would worship other deities like Ashtoreth, who we call Easter, goddess of fertility. I'm just saying, bunnies and eggs. So they are polluting the holy space, the sacred space of Yahweh Elohim, and treating his tabernacle like it's any other ritual site. Treating Yahweh Elohim like he is any other of the Elohim. And it goes on. There is a handful of priests who aren't corrupt, but the vast majority of them are so broken Or the prophets have so much to say in condemnation of the priests. There is a need for a better priest. But as the story goes, there's also a need for a better temple. So there's the tabernacle, which God himself lays the blueprints for. And he tells Moses. Moses builds it. It's awesome. That pillar of fire showing God's presence is there. And... Then hundreds of years later, you get to the time of David. And at David's time, they're not wandering in the wilderness anymore. They are building houses. David conquers huge areas of land, and he builds this really nice house. And he looks at his house, which is awesome, and then he looks at the tabernacle, and it is an antique at this point. He looks and is like, oh my gosh, my God is living in a tent 
and an antique tent of that. It had been hundreds of years. I'm not sure who of you guys likes camping, but imagine your tent trying to last that long. And so out of adoration for the Lord, David's like, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a fixed temple that outshines my house. This is where we need to pause and talk about the word house in Hebrew. He wants to build Yahweh a house, which if you're talking about a deity, is a temple. But the word house in Hebrew can mean two things, a physical house or a temple, if it's for God, or a family, like the house of David. It's talking about the lineage of David. The word house can mean two things. So David says, Lord, I want to build you a house. He's talking about a temple building. God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Lineage, family, I'm going to build you a house. Your son will build me a house. And that's exactly what happens. David plans it all out. And then when Solomon comes on the scene, he's like, all right, here's all of my plans. I've taken care of everything for you. And Solomon is the one who builds the temple. And whenever it's inaugurated, again, we see the glorious, fiery presence of God descend and fill it, showing that though God never asked for a stationary temple, he does accept it. He does receive it. But people sin. Priests sin. It's polluted. And as time goes on, you eventually get to the era of Ezekiel. Babylon starts to come in, and they come in in three waves. And the prophet Ezekiel is taken away on the first wave. And the book of Ezekiel starts where he's at this ravine in a refugee camp in Babylon, far from the temple. And he has a lot of really bizarre visions, but very important ones. One of them is that he has a vision of the temple. The priests are there, but the priests are worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars. The other Elohim. In the middle of their worship of the sun, moon, stars, unbeknownst to them, Ezekiel sees the glory of God, the throne of God, depart right out from under their noses where God's glory is no longer in that temple. Instead, what he sees in Ezekiel 1, which is a super freaky vision, is this throne of Yahweh on lots of wheels going in all directions in Babylon, at this ravine at a refugee camp. He goes on a lot of detail about those wheels. But it was so significant because what was that saying? He is not stationary. He goes to where his people are, where his faithful people are. He goes and finds them. And his faithful people were no longer in Jerusalem. Babylon continues to come in. Second wave, third wave. And in the third wave, they demolish the temple, Solomon's temple totally obliterated. Then 70 years later, the Israelites are freed, they're the Jews at that point, and they begin to come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. It's the second temple. 
Second Temple period. But this one is really small and kind of pathetic. And significantly, you know like what happened on the inauguration of the tabernacle and the temple of God's fiery glory coming down and dwelling it? With this temple? God's glory doesn't come down. He doesn't come back. Eerie. Time goes on. There's no more prophets. Hundreds and hundreds of years pass. And finally you got this guy named Herod the Great. He becomes king over the Israelites. He's not Israelite. He married into the family. But he wants to garner favor, and so he does these really impressive building projects. <clears throat> and so he looks at the temple and decides to renovate it. So he does exactly that. He pours loads of money into renovating that second temple, making it very impressive, extremely impressive. Like if you go to Jerusalem, like down below, like, we still don't know to this day how they got those rocks there. It still baffles us how Herod managed to build this. But when Herod built the addition, he started adding more sections. So you know, we talked about the three tiers. Of, there was the outer court, which... All the priests and the Israelites and Gentile converts, they could come and dine with God and worship. And then there's the holy place for the high priest and the holy of holies for the Day of Atonement. But Herod started adding layers. Where the outer court was for just the priests. There was a court of men just for men. There was a court of women just for the Israelite women. And then the court of the Gentiles. So if you're Gentile, you can only go so far. If you're an Israelite woman, you can go a little further. If you're an Israelite man, you can go even further, but you still can't go inside. And so we see this racist and sexist hierarchy forming just in the structure. There is a need for a better priest and a better temple. John opens his gospel and he says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. The person of Jesus is like the tabernacle, temple, and garden. He is where the presence of God is specially experienced. All of the ground he walks on is holy ground. And this is why Jesus could say, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That we don't have to try to ascend. We don't have to try to climb the ladder. Instead, heaven descends. Heaven comes down. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king of heaven is here. And Jesus steps on the scene and he keeps acting like a priest. Keeps, keeps healing people. How many of those people that he healed? It wasn't just that he's healing their body, but he's making them ritually clean so that they can go worship in the temple. The ten lepers, 
They are ritually impure. They are ritually unclean. They could not enter the temple. When they come to Jesus and they're pleading with him like, Jesus, please heal us. He says, go show yourself to the priest. And as they go, they're healed. He's restoring them to God. That woman who was bleeding for 12 years, she would not, for 12 years, was not allowed to enter the temple because her life is seeping out of her. She is ritually unclean. Imagine for 12 years you are not allowed to go to church. Not because you don't want to, but because you are not in a state where you are allowed to. Where if you tried to enter, you would be shooed away. Miracle after miracle, healing after healing. Jesus isn't just healing their bodies. But he's opening the doors for them to experience him. For the relationship with God to be more full. He displayed to the people what God was like through his love and generosity and justice. And he doesn't just cleanse people, he cleanses the temple multiple times. These high priests must have hated Jesus. So he goes into the temple and he's furious because there's money changers and people like buying sacrifices. There's cattle there and everything like that. Is he upset that people are trading to like money for a sacrifice? Like he just really wants them to go the whole journey from their hometown to the temple with two lambs? Like, no. It's because where that market was was in the court of the Gentiles. It is inside the temple, not outside. Inside the court of the Gentiles. Now imagine, you are a Gentile convert. And you fear Yahweh. You make the trek all the way to Jerusalem. To worship him. To be close to his presence. And when you get there, there is cattle and sheep bleeding. And the flapping of wings and cages rattling and hecklers and clinking of change. It smells like poop. How extraordinary is your prayer experience going to be? And Jesus is furious. He is furious. And he tips over the tables. He cleanses it. He's acting like a better priest. Jesus' biggest moment of temptation was in the Garden of Gethsemane, a garden. And not by accident. Because the place where the man and the woman gave in to temptation and asserted their own wills, instead Jesus lays down his will. In a garden. He was faithful where the man and woman were not. And when he is executed... He is led up a mountain. He's led to a high place. Remember, that was, could be viewed as a ritual religious site. 
And when he dies, his blood acts as spiritual purification. He's not just a priest. He's not just the temple. He's also the sacrifice. He pours out his blood, his life. Why? Because remember, those sacrifices involving blood, the blood was for the sacred space. But here, Jesus pours out his blood to purify once and for all a new kind of temple that Yahweh was building. And on the cross, he's hung between these two criminals. And one of the criminals defends the honor of Jesus and in his last moment entrusts his life to Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and says these profound words. Today, you will be with me in the garden. English translations you might see, today you'll be with me in paradise. But that Greek word, paradiso, is the Greek word for garden. Today you will be with me in the garden. Think about how that must have sounded to that man. When were those words ever uttered? He's bringing us back. When Jesus dies, the curtain that was separating the Holy of Holies from the world was torn in two. And that thing was several inches thick. It's torn in two from top to bottom, an act of God himself. And when Jesus resurrects, he resurrects in a garden. Because that is where new life is going to be. Remember, when the people had returned from exile in Babylon and they built that second temple, the glorious presence of God that typically descended like fire was absent. It never happened with that temple. Remember, David told God, I want to build you a house. God said, no, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house, your offspring. And your son will build me a house. Jesus, the son of David, did exactly that. For his blood, it atoned and it cleansed away once and for all a new kind of temple, his people. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? It is through Jesus that all of us can that the door is flung wide open where heaven isn't just up there and we're supposed to climb, but he comes down. And so significantly, purposefully, on the day of Pentecost, seven weeks after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we see the fiery presence of God come down. Not to indwell a building, but to indwell his people. Which is why As Paul meditates on this, he can say things like, don't you know that you are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in you? He has turned us into his temple. In Revelation, at the very end, y'all, we know how the story ends. I love this. 
At the end of Revelation, God's heavenly throne comes down. The epitome of heaven and earth overlapping. Where that sacred space in Eden, where heaven and earth touched down. That sacred space in the tabernacle and temple, the holy of holies, where heaven and earth overlapped. overlapped. Now the whole world overlaps with all of heaven. John sees there a garden, a tree of life, the fountain of living water. And he says, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We know the end of the story where the entire cosmos becomes his temple. Will there be no separation between us? Can we rest and we hope and we set our eyes, we fix our gaze on that day? We know the end of the story. We begin the story in a garden and we end the story in a garden. And in the very middle, we find our Lord tested and tried and resurrected in a garden. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We adore you. We worship you. God, thank you that you come down, that you humble yourself, that you recognize that there is no way for us to come up to you, that we are too polluted. We love death too much. We love the old man too much. But Lord, you make a way. Lord, that you honor the lowly. That you choose the least and the last to exalt the place of highest honor. That we would be your temple. Lord, would you give us greater eyes to see the magnitude of these words, of this thought that we are your temple, that we are part of your priesthood. Lord, would others encounter you when they encounter us? Would they experience your love, your justice, and your generosity when we encounter them? Lord, would you give us a greater love and greater patience with our brothers and sisters in faith, knowing that they also are part of the temple with us? Lord, you are wonderful and so holy, and we love you. Amen.